We're starting a series today in the book of Nehemiah called Restoring from the Ruins, drawing seven lessons from the life of this guy called Nehemiah, uh, of which the book is named. Nehemiah is a a rebuilder. He's a restorer of what was broken. Uh, He was a God-following man, wholehearted in his love for God and willing to do whatever it took to help others meet him. Nehemiah was a leader, both in the practical tasks that we'll see about over these weeks, but also spiritually in prayer and in worship. And this seemed apt for us to look at over the next seven weeks because we're in a rebuilding kind of work here. We were asked to revitalize this church to establish new things like what you're sat in right now. Some have said that the world is in a kind of rebuilding phase, particularly after COVID and everything that that shut down. We're restoring things, aren't we? Maybe back to old habits, but maybe starting brand new ones that we realized through COVID we really needed to see improved. Equally, things might seem a little bit battered in your life. Things might be broken down. Things might be struggling. And this is a work, and these are some lessons that will help you in the job of restoring in the job of rebuilding. It bears saying from the outset that our God, the God who we worship today, is a restorer. He restores our soul, Psalm 23. The Bible says that he restores the years of the harvest that the locusts have come and eaten. That's Joel 2. And then in 1 Peter 5, it says that God himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Nehemiah, in restoring the walls of Jerusalem, as we will explain and you'll see through this series, he helps us to see a glimpse of the heart of God, because God is a restoring God who looks on broken things and wants to see them rebuilt, who looks on broken people and wants to see them come back to flourishing health and wholeness. So when Nehemiah is about this work, he's echoing something much bigger that we see ultimately and perfectly in God. God is working to restore all people, all places, all things back to himself, working to heal every rift, to restore every person. And God found a willing cooperator in Nehemiah. And my prayer is that he would find some willing cooperators amongst us here. That he could restore us, he could restore this church, he could restore Berry and beyond into the fullness of the kingdom, which is his plan for all things. In terms of a background onto the book of Nehemiah, if it's not one that you know very well, in terms of kind of space in the Old Testament, we're about halfway through, but chronologically, we're right at the end of the Old Testament. If you're going to put the events on a timeline, this would come right, right at the end. After this book, there's this kind of 400-ish year period of silence, out of which then we get the Christmas story, which we'll hear about, obviously, in December. It's a history book written by a guy called Ezra and very likely one original work with Ezra. would have been one long history book that we've then split into two and given one the title Ezra and the other Nehemiah. This book records the events when the people of God, the Israelites, you might have heard them called, were returning to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was the city of God, the city of peace the city where God wanted his people to dwell. 
But because they'd rebelled against him, they were taken over by the Babylonians who came and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took the people captive. In Psalm 137, we get this in verse 1. It says, by the rivers of Babylon. This is the period that we're talking about now. We sat and wept when we remembered Zion. That's the place of God. Verse 6, it says, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So this book records what happened after this period of Babylonian exile. Now that might not sound very significant, but if you've ever felt homesick, you kind of get a sense here of what's going on. If you've ever felt like I was supposed to be there, but I'm not there. I really want to be there, but I'm over here for a time. Think of that that's gone on amongst a whole group of people for decades and decades on end. These people are bound to be in Jerusalem. That's what God wanted for them. That's what the covenant was all about. And yet they're in Babylonia, being ruled over by people who don't follow their God, who don't share their customs. And they long to be back in Jerusalem. And bit by bit, more and more of them are allowed to go back. Different rulers allow a certain number of people to go back. Ezra is one of those who goes back and he rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem, this place of worship. Nehemiah is then part of another group that goes back and does some more rebuilding that we'll focus on in a minute. They've been away from home. And whilst they've been away from home, they wept at why they were away from home. Because they'd rebelled against God. And so God had given them over to the Babylonians. They'd not followed what God wanted them to do. And so God gave them over and said, no, you can't be where you should be anymore until your hearts return to me. So that by way of introduction, let's dive into Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter in a couple of sections. Nehemiah chapter 1 starts like this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah asks these people, how's Jerusalem? How are the people that got to go back? You know, the people that I long to be a part of, how are they? How are they doing? What's it really like? How have they survived this exile that we've been in in Babylon? And the response he gets is not a good one. The people are in trouble and disgrace. The wall has been torn down. The gates have been burnt. They've got no defense. They've got no protection. They've got no security. That's what a wall did, right? kept the right people in and other people out. Their worship is being restored. We've seen in Ezra that the temple is coming back, but anyone can get in and out of the city. Imagine moving into a new house and decorating it and getting it ready and then just leaving the front door wide open when you went out. That's the kind of sense we get here. Some things are being restored, but 
It's not safe. There's no security. There's no defense. The walls are ruined, and the gates aren't doing what they should. In essence, they're saying they're vulnerable. This whole thing could get destroyed again. It would be really easy for it to happen. They're not physically safe. So Nehemiah asks, how are things? He gets this news. Things aren't really all that good. And then if we, as we carry on from verse 4, we see what his response was. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So, Nehemiah hears this awful news. And the first thing he does is to weep, to fast, and to pray. And it says that he did that for some days. Nehemiah's first response when he hears that his people are in ruin, the city that he wants to be a part of, the city that bears God's name, is destroyed, is to weep and to fast and to pray for days. The first place he goes to is the place of prayer. He doesn't go first to his friends. What do you make of this? He doesn't go to the strategy room to work out a plan. He doesn't go to the bank to see what resources he could offer towards it. He goes first to God in prayer. Now, all of those things are important. It's friends and strategy and finance. And we'll see how some of those things play themselves out. All of those things might be important, but none of them should come first. Nehemiah says, first, I go to God in prayer. Part of what got the Israelites into this awful position was not following God first, was not going to him in prayer before they did other things. They didn't follow him wholeheartedly. And so here, Nehemiah is trying to rectify the problem that got them here and say, right, we're going to set off on a different course. For Nehemiah, we might say that prayer was his first hope. Where for loads of people today, it seems like prayer is their last resort. The thing that they go to after everything else has failed. Trying this and asking that and going on Google for this. 
And then if everything else fails, okay, I guess I should ask God, right? Nehemiah says, prayer is my first hope, not my last resort. How would it be if I was to ask that of your life? When a relationship gets strained, your kids are driving you mad. Prayer, first hope or last resort? When problems pile up, prayer, first hope or last resort? When a work project is just going backwards and getting worse and worse despite all your efforts, prayer, first hope or last resort? When money just isn't quite adding up, things aren't squaring the way that you need them to. Prayer, first hope or last resort? When you look around you into a town like this and you see that God's name isn't revered and worshipped, prayer, first hope or last resort? I think so often we can be so keen to act ourselves that we never take the time to ask God to act on our behalf, right? There's a Baptist pastor called C.H. Spurgeon. And he said that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of all powerfulness. It moves God's hand. Prayer is the thing that we do that affects things in a much bigger way than we ever could. I think sometimes we can be so keen to flex our own muscles that we never pray to ask God to flex his. And really, which are going to be more effective? Which are going to be more powerful? Yours or yours with God's backing, his help, and his first movement? As I was putting this together, I remembered that phrase that sometimes used to get banded around, particularly on a playground, particularly amongst boys, I seem to remember. They would always say, well, you and whose army? It was this kind of, well, who's big enough, right? You, oh, you're going to take me on. Well, you and whose army? And the picture with something like this, the picture with prayer, the picture with Nehemiah is almost saying me and the God of the angel armies, as he's described in scripture. God comes to fight for those who go to him first in prayer. And Nehemiah knew that his response wasn't going to be enough if it didn't first come from God's hand. His reaction, his plan, his ideas weren't going to be big enough if he hadn't come first to God in prayer. And from that prayer recorded here that we've read now, after days of weeping and fasting and praying... I want to draw three lessons for us from this that we could all implement in our own lives as we see ruins around us, things that are broken down, things that need his restoration. If you're taking notes, these would be three great things to write down and to maybe pray through this week. The first thing that we see Nehemiah do is to lift his hands. The first thing he does is say, Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God, You're the God who is loving, you're covenant-keeping. Nehemiah's first response, even within his first response of prayer, is to worship, to hold his hands up to God and say, you're God and I'm not. You're almighty and I'm not very mighty. You're powerful, you're loving. Nehemiah worships God, remembers who he is by lifting his hands to him in worship. Nehemiah remembers how holy God is how massive he is, how he's the one that created all of this. 
And a problem like some ruined walls starts to look slightly different when you've got God on your side. The other way that Nehemiah lifts his hands is to confess his own sin. Do you see what happens quite quickly? That Nehemiah confesses his sin, the sin of his father, his household, his family line, but also the sin of his whole people. Now we're going to talk about that a bit more later on in the series. But it's almost like as Nehemiah lifts his hands up in worship, he also lifts his hands up in confession and just says, God, I've got nothing to hide before you. I'm so sorry that I've been wicked and rebelled against you. I'm so sorry that I've not followed what you've asked me to do. I'm so sorry that my family have done that. And I'm part of a nation that's done that. He doesn't try and make himself look great, minimize his suffering, his pain, the things that he's done wrong. Nehemiah lifts his hands in worship, but then lifts his hands in confession, admits his own brokenness, his own failure, He doesn't just look at the rubble of the walls, if you like, but he sees the rubble in his own life and says, God, please forgive me. Please be gracious again to me. So as we make prayer our first hope, the first thing we do is we lift our hands in worship. We take the moment to get right with him, to give over our sin, that he might be glorified in us. First thing there, Nehemiah lifts his hands. The second thing is that Nehemiah opens his hands. Nehemiah reminds God of his promises in the past. God, you said this to Moses. You've got to be true to that, haven't you? You're a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping kind of a God. He reminds God of what he said in the past, of who God is. But then did you notice that Nehemiah didn't really come with his own solution? He didn't say, God, I've heard that the walls have been broken down and the gates have been ruined. And I think what we should do is set up a wall building business and we should buy some gates from someone down the road and we should polish them up and we should do this and put a plan in place. We don't get a hint of that here. Now, all of that comes later. We'll see that. But Nehemiah doesn't go to God with his own plan and say, please, would you just rubber stamp that, God? Bless what I've already come up with and we'll carry on, won't we? Nehemiah goes with completely open hands and says, God, I've been weeping, I've been fasting, I've been praying because of what I've heard. What do you think the solution should be? What's your response to this, God? He opens his hands by saying, God, you said that when we rebelled, you'd scatter us across the nations. But when we came back to you, you'd gather us back together. Well, I'm coming back to you, so gather us back together. Be faithful to the word that you have already promised. It's all right to remind God who he is, to remind God of what he said to you in the past. I think God actually loves it because we're saying to God, hang on a minute, this word says that you're loving and powerful. Be loving and powerful now. God, you promised to me through words of prophecy that I was going to do this or that in your name. I'm not seeing that yet and I'm not content with the gap that's existed between your promise and my reality. Go to God telling him who he is, telling him what he's promised. It's one of the reasons we make space to pray for each other. Because sometimes what happens when we pray for each other is that we get a sense from God about something that might be significant for that person. That's like a little promise that we put in our pocket and say, God said this to me once, didn't he? And then every time that we don't see the fullness of that yet, We can go back to him and say, hang on a minute, God, you said you were going to do this. And so I'm not going to be content until I've seen that come to be. 
It's why we make space for the Holy Spirit to say things like that to us almost every time we gather. So Nehemiah reminds God who he is. He's open-handed with God's promises, but he doesn't come with his own solution. He waits for God's direction and for his involvement. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We've got to remember when we're praying that God isn't just a really clever human being. God isn't like the wisest human that's ever existed. He's read all the books and digested all the encyclopedias, right? God is of a completely different order. The Bible says that God's ultimate foolishness is greater than our most infinite wisdom. So going to God with our answers is okay, and God doesn't mind that. But going to God open-handed, saying, God, here's a problem, and I don't know what to do. Here's a problem, and I think I know what to do, but I'm pretty sure you know better. We go open-handed, and God's thoughts, which are higher than ours, we leave space for them to emerge in our lives, don't we? We don't go with a plan ready and just say, submit this into the heavenly prayer machine. We go and say, God, here's a blank bit of paper. What do you want to write on it? How can I work with you in this way? As we pray, remember that God knows best. Open your hands up when you're praying when you see a difficult situation and say, God, what do you want to happen here? Sometimes it will be the first thing that you thought of. Sometimes God will approach it from a completely different direction. And every time we follow in the way that he's leading, we'll get so much further with so much more blessing than we ever would when we're trying to force our own agenda. First thing is that Nehemiah lifts his hands in worship and in confession. The second thing is he opens his hands in coming to God, reminding God who God is, and then saying, what do you think? Not coming with his own solution, but waiting for God's direction. The third thing then is that Nehemiah sees what's in his hands. Did you see that very final verse? After days of weeping and fasting and praying, this long and beautiful prayer to God to remember what he said before, to do it again, to provide an answer where he doesn't have an answer. It just says, I was cupbearer to the king. It's like a complete gear change, a complete change of direction. And yes, probably that means that when it was in the letter, originally it was probably in the next section and we've cut it up in a weird way with chapters and verses that weren't really there. This is kind of the start of the next section. But in a sense, I kind of like it. And the reason I like it is because it talks of what God does in immediate response to the prayer that's been prayed over these last few days. After all this prayer, after all this fasting, after all this mourning, a thought comes, I was cupbearer to the king. Now that might sound completely left field, completely irrelevant, completely random, but I think what God's doing here is reminding Nehemiah, what's in your hands? What's available to you? What could you use in response to this? And Nehemiah says, well, I was cupbearer to the king, right? Think about what that means. Cupbearers are thought to be those who would literally give the king the goblet or whatever it was that they were going to drink from. 
So if someone had poisoned it because they wanted to kill the king, the cupbearer would drink it first so that the king wouldn't be poisoned, right? The king's more important. He can sacrifice a cupbearer, but woe betide anything bad happened to him. A cupbearer is a position of real trust, of real proximity. A cupbearer is a trusted position in an important household. And it's almost like Nehemiah saying, well, I don't really know what to do, but it is what I have got, God. And we'll see in the weeks to come that this relationship that he had with the king was crucial to everything that God then went on to do. At other points in scripture, God asks of people, what's in your hands? What have you got at your disposal? What could you use as part of the response to the problem that you're presenting it to me? For Nehemiah, it was this role, this job in response to the ruined walls. For Moses in Exodus, God said, what's in your hand? And he said, a staff. That's what I've got. And yet that was the staff that then went on to be used to part the Red Sea so that people could walk through. When they're being chased by people who are about to kill them, they get to walk through on dry land and the sea closes before they can be harmed. Moses, what's in your hand? A staff? Well, the staff is going to be used to clear the way for a whole nation of people to be saved. I remember when Jesus was teaching and 5,000 men plus everyone that they had with them started to get hungry. And Jesus said, well, what are you going to do, disciples? Feed them. And they kind of said, well, what's in your hand? And a little boy comes with five loaves and two fishes, which doesn't look like much, really, does it? What's in your hand? A packed lunch. But what God does with what's in their hand is to multiply it, to spread it through all the people, to solve a problem that was so much bigger Sometimes what God says is, what's in your hand? You've presented to me this problem, this ruin. You've come open-handed, great, waiting for my response. Well, my response is, what have you already got? Maybe God whispers back to you. You might not feel like you've got very much at all. But Nehemiah, he just had a job, quite a precarious job, a job that someone else could have done quite easily, I guess. Moses just had a staff, or what's a staff going to do when you're approaching a sea? A boy just had a packed lunch, what's that going to do for five, eight, ten thousand hungry people? Well, with God, what's in our hand is used to achieve far more than it ever achieves in our own hand. Because in prayer and by bringing it to God, we put what's in our hand in the hands of God. We move the, the slender nerve that amplifies our efforts if you like god does the miraculous around us as you pray see what's in your hands as you respond and say god this isn't right this situation is not okay he might say back to you what have you got to work with there's a church leader called pete hughes who i absolutely love he's written this amazing book which i would recommend everyone to read i would have brought my copy but i've already lent it out to someone because i think it's that great this book called All Things New. He's a church leader in London, and I think he is excellent. He tells this story of once going to northern Uganda to see some churches in a place called Soroti. Now, what happened was a church kind of got planted there. People started coming to faith. And then they started to say, well, okay, how can we be a blessing to the people around us, right? Just like we're trying to do that with Berry. They said to the people, what, how can we be a blessing to the people of Soroti? And all these people were basically dirt poor. They had very little to their name, no great resources, bank accounts. 
And they kind of said, well, I don't really know. You know, how can we be a blessing we want to be? And they asked them this simple question, well, what's in your hand? And one of them eventually came forward and said, well, I don't have much, but I do own this bit of land. And it's a bit of a wasteland at the moment. It's kind of a swamp. It's not great, but it's what's in my hand. Turned out that this swamp land was actually the breeding ground for mosquitoes, which then meant that the malaria rates were crazy high in this part of Sorotti. It wasn't a fruitful land, you might say. It was actually causing the people ruin because they were catching malaria, and the mosquitoes were breeding, and more people were dying in their community. But they prayed, and they said, OK, well, here's what's in our hand. What can we do with it? And someone had the idea, well, let's try and build a pond. So they got 30 men for 30 days to try and dig out this land to see if they could hit the water level for a pond to emerge. Week one, no water. Week two, no water. Week three, no water. But by the end of week four, they finally hit water. And on this land, a pond starts to emerge. Into this pond, they then start breeding fish. And the fish start to feed the people. And then there's too many fish for even all the people to eat. So they start going to a market and selling these fish. And the income that they get back, they start sending kids to school to get an education so that they can have a future. They carry on and on and on doing this. They go to the market again with even more excess. And they start to meet people's medical needs. Then there's so much abundance and so much money coming in that they build a second pond and start doing the same thing again, right? More fish, more for us to eat, none of us are going hungry, more for us to sell, so we can send more people to school, we can meet more medical needs, we can start building houses for people that don't have them. You can see Sorotti's starting to change a little bit. It ended up that they had five ponds teeming with fish, enough for them to eat, enough for them to sell, So that kids could go to school, people who didn't have houses could have shelter. And you know what they found out? It gets even better. They asked the question right at the end, well, why is it that the fish do so well here, right? We seem to have kind of struck gold. What is it that's making these fish grow so well and breed so fast? And it turned out that the fish that they'd put in bred on mosquito larvae. So all the mosquitoes that were spreading in this swamp were getting eaten by these fish. So let alone the fact that they fed the whole village, sent kids to school, built houses, employed people, built five ponds and turned around the economy. They've also eaten the thing that was destroying their life before. So no one's getting malaria anymore. Mosquitoes are dying and the fish are in abundance. What used to kill the community is now being eaten up, literally, and that's then providing for the community in this incredible way. It started with a question, what's in your hand? And a bit of swampland turned into the thing that turned around a whole town. You might look at the ruin on your life, the ruin in the world around you, and think, well, I don't really have much in my hand to respond. I don't have any ingenuity. I don't have limitless resources. I don't have the time that I would need to invest in this great problem. But like Hannah led us in prayer before, God doesn't say what's not in your hand. He comes to you and says, 
what is. Where are you starting from right now? And you might say, look, I've got an evening a week, I've got a little bit of money, and I kind of like this thing, this place, this hobby. You might say, God, here's what's in my hand. And when you put it in the hands of God, you pray with it. It starts to move the slender nerve, which moves the muscle of omnipotence. As we pray, like Nehemiah, as a first hope, lift our hands in worship, in prayer, in confession. Open our hands to remind God who he is and to remind God that we come to him looking for a solution, not with a solution that we're longing for him to bless. And then finally, we get that nudge from the Holy Spirit to say, hang on a minute, look what's in your hands. I was a cupbearer. I had a staff. I had a packed lunch. For you, the thing will be different. But a small thing in your hand, amplified and multiplied by the work of God, will be the thing that brings a solution, maybe for a whole town. So when you pray and you get that nudge, hang on a minute, why has that thing come to mind? Stick with it. Because I believe that what might be happening is God is longing to turn a whole thing around with the small thing in your hand already. It's another reason why we always leave space for the Holy Spirit. Because I genuinely believe that it might be, even now as we pray, a little idea drops into your head. Hang on a minute, I've got that, haven't I? Or there is that thing in my hand. I know it's not much, but maybe God could do something with it. We pray because I'm longing for this place to be almost a lab of those kind of ideas, of that kind of creativity, of that kind of faith which comes to God and says, I don't have much, but what I've got is yours. If it can be used for you, take it and use it for your glory. So with expectancy in our hearts, why don't we do that right now? I'm going to encourage you to stand uh, and open yourself to the work of God. Maybe your response is to say, everything seems ruined. God, please help. But maybe your response is to say, God, what is in my hands? Shall we stand? And we're going to ask that God will come by his Holy Spirit and help us be a people of prayer like Nehemiah, that we might be part of him restoring the ruins in us, but even beyond us into Bury and beyond.